What's up, everyone? Uh, welcome to the first episode of the Watch Charts podcast. Um, my name is Charles. I'm the founder and CEO of Watch Charts, and I'm joined here by um, one of my good friends and also someone who's working on this project with me, Hamza Masood, um, who is also, you know, we're both big watch enthusiasts, and um, we thought we'd do this to, you know, talk about watches from our perspective and sort of lend you know, what the, uh, what we've observed in the market, uh, to the conversation and yeah, see how it goes. Hamza, do you want to introduce yourself a bit? Hello. Uh, you can see me in a couple of, um, amusing looking videos on our YouTube channel as well. So, well, I mean, we'll have, <laughs> we'll have a more proper shout out to that, uh, I think at the end, but yeah, you may or may not have seen me, uh, around. Mm -hmm. And um, we can start with some wrist checks, as is customary, I thought. So uh, right now, I am wearing the Ming 1709 with the blue dial. Uh -huh. uh, this is a watch that I got uh, at retail at the 10-minute window when they made these available uh, last year. And I took delivery of it, I think, just actually probably like a month or two ago. Um, took quite a while. But... Um, I thought this watch was very difficult to like, it was very difficult to see, like, I guess how it would actually look in person based on the pictures. Um, but I, once I got it, I was actually quite pleased. I thought I was, you know, I guess unexpectedly uh, uh, surprised by, I think the quality um, and the sort of depth and the detail of the dial specifically. Um, and I've actually been wearing it quite a lot. I usually don't wear watches on straps that much, but um, it's a good size. I think it's 38 millimeters and the dial is really um, good and the hands are extremely legible with the loom uh, around the edges of the hands. So yeah, I've been really enjoying it. Sweet. I have a friend here locally in Seattle who uh, has the same watch. I got to check his out a couple months ago and I remember my impression being after looking at the watch the first time. Yeah. Okay. I get it. Like I understand why Ming is, well, I, I understand a, why Ming is charging as much as it is for this watch. And two, um, I understand why people like it this much. C a brand like Ming is never going to be able to make them in the quantities that will meet um, the rabid fan base's demand. Um, and so I think they get a lot of flack partly just because like they can't make what are genuinely very nice watches available to a broader audience, which kind of sucks. Um, yeah. It, it's like, if you don't think about it as a, as a, just like a watch as for what it is, I think it's, it, it's a very good execution. Um, and in a similar kind of vein of like being a very good execution of what it's trying to be, I'm wearing a Rolex Explorer uh, that I picked up last week. Uh, I barely left my wrist since then. Um, my first modern Rolex, and I'm having a I'm having a blast. I waited six months with my AD to get this. So, shout out to David. Um, yeah. And were you surprised to get the call? Because I mean, like the only Rolex I ever bought at retail was back in 2019. And I have inquired about one or two more since then, but uh, given the state of the market now, I just sort of assumed like it's a lost cause. I think my hope was that the likelihood of getting a call within the first 12 months was a hundred percent. 
but wow. I don't know that I stressed about it any more than that because it was also not like, I mean, this wasn't going to be my first watch and um, like I bought quite a few uh, before I wanted this one and I've bought more since. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like, yeah, it like I, I wasn't dying to have it on my wrist when when I when I gave when I gave my name to my AD for it. So it took as long as it did. Uh, it's nice. I don't have any plans to get rid of it. So hopefully um, it sees like tons of wrist time. Yeah, for years. The new acquisition. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Sorry, I'm just like I realized very much that I'm going through the obnoxious Rolex like Chad phase um, that everybody like shitting on online uh but like in my defense i've never had the experience i've had never had the opportunity to play that role before so i'm I'm actually quite relishing it yeah i mean it's like you know it's the classic sort of arc right of yeah like rolex fandom is when you first are a you know become an enthusiast you're like oh you know rolex is all you know really you're like oh yeah this is the main watch brand then you sort of learn about all the other brands you say okay maybe rolex is actually not all that and then eventually once you try out all these watches, once you, you know, and get maybe get your hands on a Rolex or two, then you realize, okay, I get it. Like I get why Rolex. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even, even with this, like I, I finally put it on and I was like, yeah, okay. Like this is, this is exactly why I wanted it. Right. And and that actually leads uh, very well into our next subject. I promise this isn't a uh, Rolex only show and I wouldn't say I'm like a massive Rolex fanboy, but um we actually have a question from a reader that was from uh, our Instagram um, and go check us out. We're just at watch charts on Instagram. Uh, if, if you have a chance, we post infographics about the market. And um, last week we posted one about the steel Daytona uh, three watches, the reference one, six, five, two, zero, one, one, six, five, two, zero and one, one, six, five hundred LN. And uh, we were asked by a reader, uh, which one would we pick for the price? And um, I think Hamza, do you want to start? I would pick the most current um, iteration. Oh, and just to give some uh, perspective as well. So in that post, um, the market price that we track, and we track, so we track the secondary market private sales price. And um, as of five days ago, our numbers were 46,000 for the five digit, 34,000 for the 116520, and then 47,000 for the uh, latest ceramic bezel Daytona, although that is sort of an average between the black and white dials. Um, so just to give some perspective on, you know, what we're ta- what price ranges we're talking about here. But yeah, Hamza, go on. Uh, yeah, my, my pick is the is the, the most modern iteration, the 116500. Mm-hmm. Do you want to share a bit about maybe why that's your pick? Uh, I have seen and tried on, I think, the six-digit references. Um, I don't think I've actually, I've actually ever had the chance to try on one of the five digits. But between the two, I think the fit and finish, the ceramic bezel, um, uh, the dial even, and the the, the matching of the uh, subdial colors with the bezel, I think is just like it's it's much better looking and more cohesive a design at least in my untrained eyes um, than the earlier iteration and so for a 
stainless steel sports chronograph watch at this price point, um, I think it, you know, for what it is, it looks, it looks quite nice. So, uh, but that's purely going off of what the watches uh, look like. Obviously, if price were a consideration, then I think um, uh, I would probably consider the uh, 1165.20 instead, because I think compared to the other two, that's still relatively better value. Right. Yeah. And it is interesting that, you know, the five digit and, and the latest generation ones both just right under 50k but then the 116520 is you know significantly cheaper than that um i guess it's maybe part of the sort of hype with the like zenith movements the zenith daytonas having that recognition that is maybe driving up the price of the five digit um but i was actually surprised because uh, i know that you're a pretty big fan of vintage and um so i thought i was expecting you to actually pick the five digit one um so, because my answer is actually the same, I would go with the one one six five hundred as well. I'm not a huge yep. fan of vintage. Um, I think that, yeah, especially when you look at Rolex, like you know the upgrades that they've made to the you know the bracelet, the case, like just the overall like build quality and construction over the last like you know ten fifteen years is insane. Yeah. And um, to me, like, I, I suppose you know vintage is a certain charm. Again, it's not really like massively my thing. Um, but yeah, the thing with the the thing with these Zenith movement Daytonas also is that um, they're not really vintage. They're more neo vintage, especially the ones from like the 90s. Um, right. Or if you're talking about like a more recent example. And so um, is that vintage in the way that we generally understand vintage? No. And I think that's why watches from that era are generally thought of as, as being neo, neo vintage, because they can't really claim to be modern the way a ceramic Daytona looks modern. It looks contemporary. Uh, to 2022, um, you know, the, the steel Daytonas don't perhaps in the same way. Um, but that doesn't mean that the movement inside is, is any, is any less nice or any less Rolex or that, you know, general fit and finish or construction is going to be any less sturdy or reliable, um, in a way that you'll be able to appreciate these watches for, for decades ahead um that, that's why i feel like when you when you think about like what you're getting if you look past the hype a little bit and just look at like what you're getting in terms of like value for money the the feature set that you get um yeah i, I think price wise that probably seems like the best the best value yeah i mean it's funny talking about the best value when you're talking about you know watches that are fifty thousand dollars that trade you know the, the one with six five hundred trades like what Four yeah. times almost above it, uh, its retail price, especially if you're looking at dealer pricing. Um, and then just in our infographic, you know, we showed like the one year Delta, you know, March, 2021, we said this was a $27,000 watch. Yeah. Now it's 47, so it's yeah. We should probably have like a standard disclaimer at the start of this podcast from next, ep next episode being like, this is a Veblen good. None of what we're going to talk about makes any sort of rational sense unless you like put 20 different types of blinkers on. Um, and profess love for small mechanical devices that nobody needs. Right. Um, that that's kind of like the perspective here, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, I don't know. I don't know if this is a watch that I would be, you know, willing to actually spend forty-seven thousand of my own money on. But um. Uh, no. No. <laughs> 
Okay, but um, I mean, that takes us very well into sort of the main topic that we have for today, which is sort of a discussion on, you know, where is the value in the watch market, right? I think that we both just said, you know, it's not in Rolex. Um, so, you know, where is it? Is it, is it, is there a lot of value? It's just, you have to know where to look or is it, there's really hard to, it's really hard to find value. I think this is also sort of a relevant question, you know, given sort of the market situation that we've seen with a lot of Rolex, Patek and AP watches over the last two to three months. I mean, there were some big discontinuations announced from Patek. Um, AP just announced a bunch of 50th anniversary Royal Oak pieces. Um, and the market has just, the secondary market has just gone insane um, over the last, like, you know, just two months or so. And so I think it's real, a really good time to visit this question of value. Like, is there still value in the market? Um, so I think we can start with, you know, sort of a question to set the stage. And, you know, that is, what is your definition of value? Like, how do you define value for you as a collector? For me, I think it's whether um, you can justify uh, in some way or rationalize um, perhaps a bit more objectively um, whether the amount of money being asked for a product um, makes sense based on what features that product has. So if you think about how much watch you're getting for $500 versus 5000 versus 500,000, the, um, the difference in watchmaking on offer should just like at first glance be painfully obvious. Um, because watches on the $500,000 buck, I mean, I'm, I'm using an example that's kind of extreme to, to, to illustrate the point, but I think um, by and large, if you if you don't think about like, oh, this shouldn't be priced at 500, it should be priced at 450. Like if you leave aside that sort of, commentary for a second and just talk generally about whether um, uh, watchmaking can provide value at multiple price points. I think that is definitely like, it, it feels like a very true statement to me because you can explain why a certain watch costs 500 versus 5,000 versus 25, 50, uh, and you know, 100 and beyond. Um, the level of finishing, the level of technical ingenuity, the level of craftsmanship, materials, construction, research and development. Um, and then it's unavoidable, largely, um, you know, brand brand value. So, um, you know, I, I would amend what you said a little bit earlier about there not being value in Rolex. I think there is value in Rolex um, in some parts of the vintage market still, relatively speaking. But when you're speaking, when you're speaking specifically about modern vintage, uh, sorry, modern Rolex, I think in modern Rolex, if you can get it from an AD at retail, that's the only deal left. Because there's there there literally seems to be nothing in the catalog that trades for below retail once it's out the door. Um, so that being said, I think um, you know you just have to think about and be able to explain, um, or or at the very least understand what you're getting for the amount of money you're paying and whether that seems worth it. Right. Yeah. And, you know, also um, to sort of set the stage for this conversation, when we talk about value for money, we're talking like secondary market prices. Right. Um, you know, I, I would agree that I think that, you know, the prices that Rolex is asking at retail uh, seem relatively 
at least it seemed reasonable, if not, you know, compelling in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if it's not attainable at that price from a practical standpoint, then that's really not, you know, sort of the conversation that we're focused on, right? Yeah. Um, but But I'm glad you brought up the point of, you know, sort of brand value, right? Brand equity, right? Because I think that's definitely something you have to factor into the equation. But I also think there's this distinction to be made between brand equity and sort of like, you know, the hype, right? That's that's sort of driven up the market um, for, you know, a, a few specific brands, right? I mean, to me, like what brands like Rolex, Paddock, AP have been able to create, like their sort of longevity and um, their like consistent quality over, you know, 100 plus years, that has value. Like that is not something that is easily replicatable. And I think that that's, you know, a big reason why those brands are what they are in, you know, the public eye today. Um, But I'd also think that as a result of that, there's sort of this additional like premium that's that's commanded due to just the, the hype. Right. I think it's it's beyond just the brand equity. It's the fact that these pieces are, you know, so in the case of, you know, AP and Paddock, you know, so, so limited production, so rare. Um, and, you know, the amount of sort of upper end wealth in the world is increasing. And thus, um, you know, there's no alternative, right, for these people that want, you know, that prestige, you know, that brand equity. True. I would say an associated concept that came up when you, as you were talking, was that of lifetime cost of ownership um, of a piece. Um, I think that's another thing that doesn't get brought up much, if at all, um, in in the discussion certainly that I have with with other collectors and and, and you know other people in the industry about um, what does it cost to keep a Rolex versus a complicated paddock that uh, has a completely different recommended service interval um, and whose per service cost is is higher and whose risk of getting messed up in some way uh, either during transit or during its service is is you know um, is higher for that reason as well um, yeah it, it's difficult really to like say that I feel like I, I wish there were some way to factor that in into the discussions that we have today. But I, I think it's just like it's everybody's talking about buying. Nobody talk. Nobody talks about like how long they're owning stuff for. Um, and so because of that, I think it's just like something that never comes up. Yeah, there's just a lot of sort of um, vagueness and uncertainty, you know, in in that area, like in general. I mean, I've been collecting like five years and. Um, I've never, you know, sort of had to service a watch that I sort of got, you know, like in close to new condition. I have bought vintage watches or neo vintage watches before that I've had serviced, but, you know, never like a modern watch that, you know, like a watch that's a couple years old. I've I've never actually serviced it. And, you know, like when you look at, you know, forums and people talk about this, like it's all over the place sort of in terms of, oh, should you follow the recommended service intervals? You just, you know, run it till it breaks. Um, you know, even even the cost of service is is very unclear. I think for a lot of pieces, um, and like, I mean, I I, I was looking at like you know a, a, a Bulgari actually. This is a bit of foreshadowing, um, but um, like there was like an in house movement, and you know I couldn't like there was not even information anywhere about the service cost of mm-hmm. this watch. Um, so yeah, just a lot of obscurity and sort of a lot of 
And then there's a lot of like, you know, rumors too. like people say, like, you know, what's the reliability of an Omega versus a Rolex, right? Is it really, you know, comparable? Some people will say, oh, you know, Rolex reliability blows Omega out of the water. Other people will say, no, it's actually quite close. It's, it's just really hard to know. Yeah. Um, at that point, I think also um, it, it is where your conception of value can be quite skewed by what your experience of going through the surface process has been like. Um, especially like if you got a watch that had an issue that you didn't cause, um, like, you know, a few years ago when the Tudor Black Bay GMT came out, there were reports that some people were having issues with the date window. Um, that's the example which for whatever reason comes to mind, but you know, there, there have been other instances and like all kinds of horror stories and nightmare stories that, that people, uh, relate on the internet. And so at that point, if it's happening to you on a $25,000 watch. I don't know how much you're really going to care about whether you got good value for money for what you paid, right? I think just the 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 exhaustion of the experience itself, especially if it goes south, um, completely destroys whatever sense of value for money you may thought you may have thought you had gained in in buying that watch like i've i I don't know that i've been in that exact set of circumstances but like i can think of situations where i have similarly had cause to question why i was spending as much money as i was on these things and it's like it is a dangerous road to travel uh to go to let your thinking go down that way yeah i mean and not to mention you know like the service um you know time that it takes like to to, to yeah. um, you know get the watch back like i um have a friend who i think he has a tudor pelagos i, I think it's it, i believe it's a pelagos it's uh, a tudor watch um that was with the uh, service center for over one year um for whatever reason and you know yeah. that's, that's just insane to be spending you know that much money and, and not like it's equivalent of taking your car into the shop and not seeing it for a year but um, unfortunately, yeah. Um, but but for me, I think, um, yeah, like I think that, you know, value for money is it's it's really uh, a good place to start is sort of looking at, you know, like, like you said, sort of these, you know, baseline, like, you know, lower end, like entry level price points, you know, maybe three or five hundred dollars. And then looking at, you know, the feature set there, looking at the quality there, uh, the brand equity, and then seeing like, you know, can you justify, OK, like, you know, if I look at a Tissot for five hundred dollars versus a Omega for $3,000, right? Can I justify, Can I, if I look at these watches side by side, if I wear them, if I own them, can I understand why the Omega costs, you know, six times more or whatever? Right. I think that's a pretty good place to start. And um, I think- I mean, I'll, that- I'll, share, I'll share like a perspective just from like my most recent experience. So I had a friend um, who recently asked me for advice on buying a watch. And so I obviously was like, okay, challenge accepted. Um, and you know, he gave me a bunch of search parameters and he, he was like, I I know nothing about watches. I don't want to have to think about it. I trust you just like go figure it, figure this out and like, give me a bunch of options. So, um, we eventually settled on a budget of about $600, but not before I got the sense that he might be willing to spend quite a bit more than that. So I looked at things up to about the 1200 to $1,300 range. And what's fascinating to me to have spent that much time like looking at individual watches and maybe like two or three dozen over the last two or three days is there seems to be something or the other that gets added as part of the feature set 
with every jump in retail price of 30 to $50. So like either you'll suddenly get, you know, you, you jump, you jump up 30 bucks and all else being equal, you suddenly get a ceramic bezel. You jump another 50 bucks, all of a sudden, you know, you're up from like a standard movement to a chronometer movement. Uh, you jump up another uh, increment, you know, suddenly you're getting like multiple different levels of finish on the case and bracelet. So it's like, it's fascinating to watch like how much gradation there is in uh, what can be justified as uh, value for money, um, even between the 500 to let's say $1,300 price points. Yeah. And I think that's a great point. Like, I mean, also in terms of like collecting philosophy, right. If you want to get into this for a minute, like um, I think it's uh, critical that, you know, as an enthusiast, like you start off, you know, at like the lower end of the, of the price range. I, I don't, I wouldn't recommend any enthusiast, you know, start off. Like if you're saying, okay, I just want to buy one watch and that's my only watch and I don't really care too much about watches. I don't really know too much about watches. I just want like one nice watch for, you know, formal occasions or even like one nice watch for every day where, right. yeah. And I don't, and I don't have a lot of money to spend. Sorry. And I don't have a lot of money to spend. Oh, right? well, so I don't want, you know, like just, just buy the Rolex, right. Just buy the tutor. But, um, I think that if you're, you know, if you're serious about the hobby, it's important to start sort of, you know, from the entry level and have this experience, right. Have this ownership experience of, okay. You know, starting with like a few hundred dollars or maybe even starting with like, you know, a Seiko five, you know, as, as far as, um, you know, as much as that is memed, you know, like, um, for $50 or how much they go for these days. And sort of seeing, you know, what you're getting for your money as you step up the price ladder and then deciding where that sweet spot, sweet spot of value is, um, is for you, right? I think the issue with starting with like, you know, a Tudor or starting with an Omega or even starting with a Rolex is it's hard to appreciate um, what you're getting for that money, what you're getting for that price without first having seen all the other options at the lower price points. And I think that, you know, for, for a lot of people, they will find the sweet spot and maybe it's not, you know, even if they have the means, like, you know, maybe it's not Rolex, maybe it is, you know, like, like $3,000 or $2,000 where the sweet spot is, because I think like, and, and going back to my original point, I think that once you sort of start getting above, you know, five, $10,000, um, it's, it's more murky, like, you know, what, what you're getting for money, like the value for money proposition, right? It's yep. much clear when you look at, okay, a $500 to silver, so $3,000 Omega, it's even, you know, maybe clear with looking at like a $3,000 Omega versus like a $10,000, you know, relatively higher end Rolex, um, like maybe like a well, Skydweller chart 10K, but you know, uh, like a Skydweller or something like that. Um, but I think when you get up to, you know, especially if you look at market pricing for, you know, like the 5711 is, you know, 200K, uh, 180K, I think is, is the latest number that we put. Um, like, how do you justify from a value standpoint, you know, that compared to like, I don't, I don't know, like, you know, com compared to any number of, you know, insane watches that you can get for, for that, that much money. Yeah. From, from, you know, from, from independence or like, you know, grand complications, you know, like it's, I, I think it's like from a value standpoint, very difficult to justify. Right. Um, so yeah, my, my approach would be to sort of, I, I think that like, similar to what you said, I, I want something that's, you know, unique that, that took, you know, some level of, uh, 
effort and attention detail to create that's not easily replicatable, right? And mm -hmm. those are sort of the, the um, I guess, benchmarks that I look at. And then I, I, I compare it with, you know, what, it, what else is available in the market. And to me, that's, that's how I look at value. Um, but I don't, yeah, I, I don't think that. So, so let me ask you, so let me ask you an, an interesting question then. Mm -hmm. um, which of the two Speedmasters do you think is better value? The uh, older um, uh, 1861 movement uh, Speedmaster, which is still available, and I think in the Hesselite closed case back version is a little over $5,000, or the um, identical version of that watch that comes with the 3861 movement for, I believe, um, over $6,000 or $6,500. And, and so, so all you do is, so all mm -hmm. you do is uh, you change the escapement, you add on MetaS certification and, um, you know, newer bracelet, newer um, case design and, you know, you go back to dot over 90 and those kinds of things. But at the end of the day, it is still a mass produced Omega Speedmaster professional that Omega is probably going to make tens of thousands of. Um, which yeah. which would you say is, is the better value? I mean, so we're, we're looking at, if I'm, if I'm uh, not misunderstanding, we're looking at sort of like the latest generation Speedmaster that came out, I think, beginning of last year versus yeah. like the those in production since like... Yeah. 2014 or something. I mean, I'm looking yeah. at the market pricing that we have right now on our website for these. Um, I, I don't know which reference comes with the Hesalite and which one comes with the Sapphire, but you know, they're all pretty much like very similar ballpark, right? Like I see like the previous one is like, uh, I think, I believe with the Hesalite, it's like $5,000. Mm -hmm. um, and the latest one, uh, let me just check if this has the Hesalite or not. Uh, yeah, this, the latest one with the Hesalite is like 5,900, right? So it's like a $1,000 difference, um, like mm -hmm. $900 difference. So to me, like, you know, these are sort of more in this, like they're basically in the same ballpark. Um, so I think like I, it's hard for me to, to, to say which one's a better value because I think it's just a matter of preference, right? I know that the case shape is slightly different. There are those other, you know, differences in the movement and the dial that we talked about. Um I think it just comes down to a matter of preference, right? I think that anyone buying a $5,000 watch, you know, should also be able to afford a $6,000 watch. Um, and and if it's just a matter of, you know, whether you think that extra $1,000 is worth it because for some reason, like you really do like the new case. Like I think I, I've actually seen the new one in person. I do like the case shape. I think it's, I think it's slightly more compact if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. It is. Um, but I, but I do like the new case shape. So, you know, maybe that is worth an extra $1,000. But I think at that point, it's very, it's very, very subjective. What I would, you know, sort of like look at is like, I guess, you know, broader sort of price points, like, you know, maybe like $5,000 price point versus like $10,000 price point or something like that. I think that within like sort of, you know, relatively small differences within the same price range, it's more just like, you know, a matter of preference. Right. So then uh, between, so, so to tie like the two ends from from this conversation, because I'm, I'm, uh, I'm interested in what your answer is going to be. Between a Daytona at um, a modern Daytona at forty-seven, and a, a modern Speedy at fifty-nine hundred, which do you think is the better value? I mean, I mean that yeah, that's you know that's that's indisputable for me. It's it's the Speedmaster, of course. Um, but you know, it's 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 subjective, right? Like the thing is with the Daytona, you know, is 
there's not a replacement, right? That's sort of the thing with, you know, Rolex, Paddock, AP. It's not like you can just, you know, even if something else has all the same features and everything, you know, like if it's like the perfect homage, it's still not going to be a Rolex. It's still not going to be, you know, a Nautilus or a Royal Oak, whatever. And so to some people, you know, like if that's what you value, then you have no alternative. And that's sort of why I think we see the market for those watches at where they are. It's because, you know, it's because of the situation. Um, but yeah, like for me, like I, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of chronographs, honestly. Um, but right. Like if I had, no, I think it's, yeah, I I think it's just like, I think it's just like, it it drives home home the point, right. That like, what we're talking about at the end of the day is two luxury chronographs, one hand wound state of the art tech, the other automatic state of the art tech, um, both very handsome, um, retail price differences maybe make some sense but then when you look at the pre-owned market price differences it's night and day and it's very it's very easy at that point to say the value for money um uh kind of winner is in some sense indisputable right so so that's where like it, it becomes also interesting to talk about where the boundary is between what's considered a almost like a self-evident demonstration of value as opposed to you know perceived differences of value and i think it's like like you said like perceived differences of value become matters of preference certainly when you're talking about price gradations from five to five nine you know five nine but then it's it's a different ball game when uh when you're talking about going from 5900 to what was it forty-seven thousand. yeah I mean, there's, it's not, there's nowhere where you can like really draw the line, but yeah, like, you know, this, I think for this example, and you know, like the Speedmaster is a, um, it's, it's a watch with great heritage, you know, it's a watch with probably better heritage than the Daytona. Um, But it's just, I think, you know, a a result of sort of Omega's uh, strategy, or maybe, you know, like in some parts of their history, you know, like some maybe relatively questionable strategy um, that, that has sort of, cause them to sort of end up in the situation that they are today you know there's a million speedmaster references it's sort of like the only omega that uh collection that you know i guess gets any sort of hype or any sort of recognition um and and you know there are like you know there's the silver snoopy right there are you know the 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 45th are you really saying the people that make innumerable limited edition references of the exact same watch don't know what they're talking about when it comes to product strategy (laughs) <laughs> i mean to be fair they have been a bit better about that recently i feel like I, I don't i don't feel like they've been releasing as many limited um editions as, as they used to but yeah you know I, it just it it definitely dilutes the market you know rolex has you know uh, three steel daytonas spanning what like 30 years right and you know omega i guess you know they, they do have like that core you know collection too there's the the, the you know current reference that starts with 310 then there's the previous one that starts with 311 right. have like the you know the the uh, ones that had the old reference number structure, but yeah, it's a, it's a completely different sort of landscape. And so sort of getting into the next um, topic, which is, you know, what is the landscape of the current watch market? Um, is it, and, and then based on your assessment of the landscape, is it easy or hard to find value? And I think this um, basically, you know, jumps off like right, you know, the, the, the exact sort of discussion that we've been having, which is that I feel like right now, when I look at the market, um, I think there are, you know, 
plenty of good examples of value, um, but it's just not where the attention is, right? And that's and I think that's sort of you know that's the nature of value, right? If something is undervalued, if something is you know underappreciated, it's it's because there you know there's not attention you know uh, focused on that thing, and and I think that that's a that's also sort of part of the experience that we've seen like with with social media now is that I think there's more and more of a concentration of interest in a few specific brands and a few specific collections. And I think at a first glance, it might be, you know, easy to think that, you know, those are the only watches out there. Are you about to start defending Panerai's? Um, I, I did not have Panerai in mind when I, um, when I said all this, but um I don't know. I don't know. I don't know too much about Panerai, honestly. I know that they start at like three or four K. I can't really say if that's a good value or not. I, yeah, I don't really know much about the movements. I do know that at some point, like in Panerai's history, they couldn't even distinguish between real and fake Panerai's because they were so cheaply made. Yeah, I think when I when I think about Panerai, I think about just how the uh, cyclical nature of aesthetic trends can so maul uh, a brand's uh, perception and per- you know perceived value um, over time. If you had a Panerai in the 2000s, you were probably the bee's knees. And if you have a Panerai in 2022, you can enjoy them, but nobody's talking about them nobody's yeah it's it's just not where the the center of the watch world's discussion and um you know collective consciousness seems to be and um i think the attendant lack of hype means that if you want a panerai and a new one comes out you're not going to be trying to fight with 20,000 other people to try and get one at retail. Of course not. Yeah. Um, it's just unfortunate that if you happen to be the person who was interested in the kinds of stuff that is hyped up right now, that it's difficult for you to attain those pieces compared to maybe in the past. So that's, that's kind of how like I, I see the inner intersection of hype and value uh, in today's market a little bit as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I think if, if you happen to be interested in things that are not hyped, it's easier to find value than, uh, than if you are uh, unlucky enough to be uh, after something that, that everyone else is after at the same time. But I mean, I, I realize I'm speaking about this very much from the perspective of somebody who wants to be in the collecting game long term. And so if I don't get something right this moment, right this instant today, um, you know, it's it's like I'm I'm disappointed and and sitting there with my uh, with my head hung hung down, you know, uh, it's like, OK, like it takes a while to get to what you want. You demonstrate the patience and it'll it'll come your way yeah and, also, you know like you know 
five years ago, what, 5711s were like 30K. Like that's sort of the perspective yeah. I had. Like, you know, when I first started collecting in 2017, I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm not quite ready to spend $30,000 on a watch yet. Um, maybe I will be in a couple of years. So, you know, I'll, I'll first start, like I said, you know, start at the low end, you know, work my way up, sort of experience all these things. And then uh, like, even then, like I liked the Nautilus. I don't know. I just, I liked the history. I'm, I'm a big history fan. I liked, you know, the, the Gerald Genta design. I like these. I didn't actually care that much for the Royal Oak, but I always just loved the Nautilus design. And I, and I said, okay, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll work hard. I'll save up for a couple of years and I'll buy myself a Nautilus at 30 K. And mm -hmm. now they're 180. Right. So, but, but I think it's also like the watch space is a very top heavy space, right? Like um, it's, it's a lot of interest in a few select models. And then, you know, like you look at, you know, like brands like Omega, brands like, you know, Tissot, like Longines, you know, they make, they have hundreds of, you know, references in their, in their current catalog, right? And, and thousands, tens of thousands, like, you know, in their historical catalogs, right? There's so many watches out there. And I think that like, if you just look, you know, numerically, like, in, by, like sort of by reference, right? I think that the vast majority of watches are on the secondary market are still, you know, reasonable values, right? It's like, when you only look at Rolex and Paddock and AP, you're almost surprised to, to, to remember that, you know, like the average Omega probably trades, you know, 50% below its retail price. The average Chassot, you know, trades 50% below its retail price, right? Like, and, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that those are extremely good values, but I'm saying they're at least, you know, reasonable, like fair values, right? And I think there are some other pockets, which I'll get into, you know, later on in the show, um, where I think there could be, you know, extremely good values, but those might be, you know, uh, more of course more subjective and also harder to find but i think the current landscape overall is that most watches i think are reasonably priced but it's just most watches that people are that is in the public mind share are extremely hyped up um, and that's also not just due to you know sort of our segment like the enthusiast segment right we also have to remember that you know the average person buying a rolex is not an enthusiast right and that's why rolex sells so many more watches than other brands. And I think that's also probably a big portion of, you know, AP and PEDEX sales, right? It's just to, um, you know, wealthy people who like, you know, are, are not necessarily hardcore enthusiasts. They like watches, they, they, you know, might have a collection, but, but they're not like, you know, hardcore enthusiasts, but, but they're not going to look at, you know, they're not going to consider, you know, other brands out there, like maybe like, you know, like Zenith or like Breguet or whatever, right? You know, they, right. they know these brands, uh, they've heard everyone's heard of Rolex, you know, they, they might know, you know, Paddock AP, and they say, you know, these are the only watches I want to consider. And again, right. for that person, there, there is no alternative. And uh, as a result, you know, as enthusiasts, we are also sort of fighting in the market with those people. Whereas that's not the case with, you know, like most other brands. Um, so yeah, I mean, what do you think? Like, is it is it easier or hard to find value in the current market from your perspective? Um, yeah, I, I think uh, the 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 so my the, the answer for me over time, I think has like it's it's changed. Uh, it you know sometimes depending on what I'm after and how much I'm I'm realizing I have to pay for it. Um, you know, turns out to be something that I'm happy with. Sometimes you get lucky and you find what you think is a deal. And sometimes, um, you know, you feel like you're paying through the nose and you've 
justified to yourself why it's okay for you to do that. So I happen, for instance, to be particular, you know, to be persuaded that I don't want to buy a Rolex at above retail. And so I wait six months and I'm able to buy one. But if I convince myself that I want a Rolex more than I can convince myself to wait for one, then, you know, I, I have to pay whatever the additional market premium is. In this case, like it's around 2000 more than that dollars over retail, um, the, the revised retail prices. And so, um, you know, maybe, maybe I can, you know, I'm, if, if I'm convinced that I, I, I need it even at the higher price, then uh, hopefully I also have uh, the liquidity to be able to, to pay for it. Um, and if I do, then yeah, I like, I will, I will agree that I'm still getting good value for money, but I, I'm, I don't happen to be that particular sort of consumer. And so I'm not persuaded that um, for me, there can be good reasons on, on my sort of budget to, to pay over retail for, for these watches. So, um, yeah, I, I think like it boils down to, uh, like you said, like if you're just the kind of person who's not even gonna bother looking at anything less than a Rolex or an AP or a paddock, then um, even on the secondary market, having to pay a 20% premium for a Rolex steel professional model isn't going to feel like maybe a drop in the bucket. Right. And I mean, you know, the question of value also, it's it's not always relevant, right? It, it just, it depends on, you know, sort of your reason for buying the watch, right? Like I, I will buy some watches that I'm thinking, okay, you know, I'm not sure if I'm going to keep this watch forever. It's just an interesting watch to uh, experience, you know, to see like, especially if it's, you know, one that's relatively hyped, like, you know, maybe see what, what the hype is about and I know I'm not going to lose money on it. Um, and, you know, like I'm not super fussed about, you know, getting that watch or, or like finding some alternative. Like it's like, okay, great. If I can get it for what I think is a reasonable price. Great. If not, well, it's okay. There are other options. Um, and then there are some, you know, I think sort of right now in my collecting journey, I'm sort of at the point where it's like, I, I have something very, very specific that I want, and it's not easy to find. There are very, very few options. Um, and at that point, the, val the question of value sort of goes out the window because you just have no choices. And you just have to pay whatever, like, there are no substitutes. You just have, like, even if you throw the question of brand equity, you know, even if you say, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care what brand it's from, there are still very, very few choices. Um, and you basically just have to, like to pay what the price is, right? It's, you don't have a choice. Um, yeah. I think, I think when it comes to discussing value, there's like one other class of watches for which it's almost offensive to bring up the question of value, which is watches that you own for sentimental value, for their sentimental value. For sure. Um, and so in, in, you know, in that instance, it's the, the interesting thing about the sentimental value is of course, like if you happen to be somebody who. Um, it, it holds on to something not just because of some connection that it makes you feel you have with another person, but but purely with the object itself. Um, it could be that you know you you fall in love with something that you can uh, afford to own, and then it's like it, you know the, the the question of value really doesn't figure into it. Right. Um, and and I actually wrote like 
my own personal emotional experience was 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 powerful enough that I, I I wrote about it in a review that I did for for one of my watches on on Fifth Wrist, where uh, I, I wrote about like how I just like all questions of rationality and uh, you know justifying cost and what went into the movement and the materials and all of those like kinds of questions they just like went out the window when the first time I saw a uh, Grand Seiko uh, cherry blossom spring drive in person for the first time. I, it, it was like, all right, like I, I, there is no room for questions. Like I love this watch and I want to have it. And I don't care about, um, you know, how long I might have to wait, what I might have to pay and um, how much I might lose on it. And whether it makes sense fitting in with the rest of my collecting strategy and how I want to allocate my savings towards buying more watches all of that goes out the window. Um, you know, I just, I want it. And I, it, it is offensive to me in, in that context to even be thinking about how much value this watch might have. Mm -hmm. Right. So, it, you know, it's, it, it's, it's not just like, oh, this is my grandfather's watch. How could you possibly ask me how much it might be worth? It's, it's also just like, it is, it is possible to just like be absolutely infatuated with a mechanical timepiece, um, or in Spring Drive's case, I guess some sort of weird bastard. But um, uh, you know, it yeah, val value really doesn't matter when when you're talking about those sorts of circumstances. Right. I think the best feeling is when you come across one of those watches, which is basically like you know oh, I have to have it regardless of the price, and then it turns out that it's not actually that desirable. And so as a result, it can still be quite a compelling value. Yeah. And that's, you're sort of getting the best of both worlds there. Um, but yeah, like, you know, the, on the other end, like, the, like when I bought my Rolex at retail, it was a Yachtmaster. Um, that watch was like a 12.8 retail or 12.3 plus tax. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, the market back, back then, you know, now it's like, what, like a 16K watch or something like that. But the market back then was like nine or 10. But I willingly, you know, signed up with my AD to try to get that watch at retail, knowing I was going to overpay like, you know, two or three K. Right. Because I, you know, it was my first, you know, Rolex and it was also sort of a milestone watch. It was a watch like uh, for my 25th birthday. Um, and I thought, okay, well, you know, I, I should at least go through the AD experience. I should at least, you know, have the, you know, uh, warranty card in my name. I should, you know, have that experience. And, if I lose, you know, two, three, two or three thousand dollars for it, then so be it, right? And right. in that case, you know, that's not a consideration. It just happens, yeah. you know, given the current market, that watch ended up, you know, appreciating. But you know, it's a watch that I'll never sell. Um, exactly. But let's go on to the next topic, which is um. Let's let's get more concrete with you know the the specific examples of maybe, uh, where the value is in the market, right? Um, and I guess I can start with one. This is one that this is one that I sort of briefly mentioned earlier, um, and and a watch that I was um, also lucky enough to be able to buy. Um, and it's one of those examples where it's like a watch I had to have, and um, it also t like was not a watch that was in any way desirable. I'm pretty sure you know most of the uh, listeners have probably not been, never even heard of this watch, um, but it's a Bulgari Solo Tempo, um, and it's from the Octo collection. It's not an Octo Finissimo, 
it came out, I think, before the Finissimo, but it has that same octo case shape. Um, and it's a 38 millimeter, uh, you know, octo case. Um, I think it's 10.5 millimeters thin, so relatively thin, still not as thin as, as a Finissimo, but still relatively thin. Uh, three hands and a date. And the one that I wanted had a blue dial. Um, and I think the Octo in general is just extremely underrated. And, and it's really hard to say why. I mean, that is, you know, uh, Bulgari is the modern day Gerald Genta, right? Gerald Genta, um, you know, had his brand and then he sold it to Bulgari. And Bulgari for a time produced watches under the Gerald Genta name. Um, and then afterwards, you know, sort of uh, swapped it over to the Bulgari name. But, you know, the Octo is um, a derivation of Gerald Genta's designs. Right. And um, not only that, but it's also, you know, like an integrated bracelet, not, but not only all that, like, you know, it's, they've also had like the, you know, mechanical innovation over the last couple of years. Right. I mean, uh, I think last year, like Hodinkee published an article, like, you know, seven records in seven years for yeah. this, you know, octo case, you know, uh, complications. Right. It um, is in one way. Yeah. The Octofinissimo in like one way is the logical conclusion to that, to that particular line of design thinking as like the absolute expression of what a Gerald Genta design can be. Mm -hmm. And, and so in my, in, in, in my mind, like the, the solo tempo is like, like it, the, the Finissimo would not exist basically if the, if the solo tempo had not happened. Right. And it's a shame that they discontinued it too. I mean, you know, nowadays, like all the uh, Finissimos are like at least 40 millimeters um, and then they also, they, they discontinued the solo tempo, but they still make a Roma, Octo Roma, which is 42 millimeters. Um, they just came out with the perpetual calendar last year. Um, and that was also 40 millimeters. But I mean, for my wrist size and my preference, like that's just like too big. Um, so the solo tempo was sort of this, you know, um, ideal candidate for me because it was very wearable at 38 millimeters and it had like some heft. I don't like, you know, overly light watches and so with the steel integrated bracelet and with the um you know relatively thicker case um it had like you know very good heft and the dial is like this you know very very nice shade of sunburst blue and so it's sort of the whole package and i mean i haven't even said how much it cost you know like i paid fifty eight hundred dollars for that watch right and like that was i think a bit on the high end i mean i had I, there were there were very very few available but it seemed like, you know, it was maybe even possible to get that watch for like, you know, 5K. Like I saw Black Dial example selling for like 4K uh, or in the 4000s, right? Um, but it's just like, you know. And is the black also sunburst or is it uh, a, a matte finish of some sort? It's hard to say because it's it's difficult to photograph. Um, I, 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 I believe it is a sunburst black. I believe it is. Okay. Um, but it's like one of those things where like the blue dial like almost looks black, you know, in, in certain lighting, right? It's, it's very hard to see. Um, but yeah, like, you know, for, for $5,800 or for, you know, somewhere between four and $5,000 for the black dial, full box and papers, uh, perfect, like basically mint condition, integrated bracelet, Gerald Genta heritage, in-house movement, I forgot to mention also, right? Like that to me is... A, an extreme like an extremely i think like good example of like a hidden gem and i think the octo overall just deserves more appreciation um i know the finissimos now i think are selling around like eight or nine to like like maybe 10k around that um 
which I think is still reasonable. Um, although that is, as I said, it's not really for me because it's bigger and it's titanium. They have a steel version now too, though. Um, but you know, this specific example with the 38 millimeter case that really was like the perfect size for me um, at under $6,000 is crazy. Yep. Great pick. And I've, uh, I, I, I saw that watch last, uh, last fall in person and, uh, it's, it's every bit as good and in person in the metal as it looks like on paper when the value proposition is pitched that way. Did you have any pick Hamza that you wanted to share? I did. I picked the Grand Seiko SBGW 231 retail price in the U S is $4,300. And uh, the current market average price is around $3,400. And at either price point, depending on um, you know what you're getting along with the, with the box and papers, and, and I think like everybody has their own kind of tolerance for whether or not that stuff is available, um, how used the watch is and, 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 and whatnot. If you just think about for a second what you're getting for that much money um, with or without the pre-owned uh, discount, is just astounding. Um, the design simplicity, the execution of the simplicity of that design, the um, precision and finesse with which the dial furniture is uh, uh, is made, the hour markers, the double hour markers, the hands, um, how far out the hands go from the center, um, how they are pinned to the pinion in the middle, um, the seconds track um, and then you flip it over and actually there's a little line of a decorative like motif of sorts surrounding the display case back um, which on the inside has a superbly finished movement at for that price point that happens to be you know superbly accurate and um, runs for I believe 80 hours um, manual wind and 37 millimeters it will take literally any strap you throw at it and um when you know as far as the straps are concerned it's 19 millimeters which is you know at, at the lugs which is actually appropriate for the watch when you wear it but obviously a bit frustrating because it's one less watch that we you can reuse all of your 20 millimeter straps for but um, when, you know, once you once you kind of build up, I guess, a collection of straps, um, and you keep cycling through, the versatility that it has to dress up and down appropriately for the rest of your wardrobe for the day is just it, it is uh, a bit of a chameleon in that sense because you would think at first glance that it's a dress watch and that it can only be worn as a dress watch. Um, but my personal experience suggests completely otherwise. It is still a push-in crown. It's not a screw-down crown, so it doesn't have any great amount of water resistance. But, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, how, how much water resistance are we really going to need? If you get it splashed in the rain or while washing your hands, I think you'll be fine. Um, I believe, but I would want to double-check that it is 30 meters of water resistance. So all in all, uh, I think for that much money and for the quality of the finish and the feature set that it provides and its unexpected versatility, 
I am certainly hard pressed to think of other watches that are comparable, quote unquote, values for that much money um, with or without the pre-owned discount. Yeah, I mean, and, and that discount is significant, right? Like, again, you know, it's like $900. What we're showing, um, you know, below retail is, is the secondary market value, at least for private party value. And um, I mean, Grand Seiko has certainly moved up market in, uh, in, in recent years. Uh, I think there's like, at least back when I looked at Grand Seiko a couple years ago, there were still like modern spring drives that you could get for around $3,000. I don't know if that's still the case. I would be very surprised if that were the case now. No, but you know, like it's a it's a dress watch, and um, so for that reason, you know, it's always going to have like, or not always, but maybe you know, in the current sort of um, tastes, the current uh, you know, consumer uh, overall consumer preference, you know, is, is obviously towards sports watches. So there's obviously going to be you know, additional sort of bonus of value there. Um, and you know, I have had uh, I've had owned actually. This is a champagne dial, right? That's what it's at least that's what it says from our specs. It is not a champagne dial. It is uh, a creamy color that um, contrasts and like plays off of any number of different uh, colored leather straps that I've tried it on. Um, I, I own this watch. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm, I'm speaking in that sense from, from a bit of personal experience, but um, yeah, there's, there's two versions of this watch. There's this, which is the 231. And then there's a second that comes with a blue seconds hand that has a much more of an ivory finished dial. Uh, that one comes on a bracelet straight from the factory. Uh, it's the SBGW 235. That dial does not have the same, I think, versatility, not least because it has it already has a colored uh, seconds hand. Right. So, um, you know, even even there, it's kind of like okay. So you know, Grand Seiko is making multiple watches with some variations um, that are more or less the same watch, but then which one within them can you pick out that seems to be much more of a compelling wearing and owning experience? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think the answer to that question specifically is that it's the 231. Mm -hmm. is, are they both um, matte dials? Yes, they are both matte dials. So the one that I owned was a, um, I, I actually forget the reference, but it was a spring drive. It was with the old Seiko logo at the top and the Grand Seiko at the bottom. Mm -hmm. And it had a sunburst champagne dial. And that watch actually came on a bracelet too. I think I bought it for like 2,700, um, like back in like 2019 or something, 2018. Um, and Incredible. I, yeah, I was just, I, I bought that watch sort of just seeing, okay, like it was my first Grand Seiko, it was my first spring drive. It was just like another watch. I was like, okay, let me sort of see what the hype is about, right? You know? Uh, everyone in like sort of the the you know community the forum community loves Grand Seiko, right? So um, I thought it was a relatively decent value, um, and you know I didn't really sort of expect much because I thought it was so it, it looked so simple like from the pictures, right? But then actually wearing it and owning it, and I did end up putting it on a few straps as well. Um, like it's I mean it's it's like you know very very um, overstated at this point, but like you do sort of get, okay, like there is this sort of, you know, simple beauty and this simple, um, you know, I guess yet high quality attention to detail when it, when it comes to the dial. And so I was like, I, I'm not a huge fan of champagne dials. Honestly, that one was like a sunburst champagne dial. Um, but I ended up like, you know, liking it a lot more than I thought I would. And I actually sold it to get another um, Grand Seiko, but 
um, it was like I did not expect to sort of have as much emotional attachment to that watch as I ended up having. Right. But on the subject of the 235, I mean, like, I like watches on bracelets. I don't know how uh, nice this bracelet is, but I mean, and, and this watch also seems like it's not in production anymore as opposed to the 231. Um, but we're showing a market average of 3,500 for this watch. So, you know, basically identical to the um, other one. And, you know, on a bracelet, like, for basically the same price, I mean, this might even be a, a more compelling value, um, you know, the, the differences in the dial notwithstanding. Yes and no. I think you would lose some in versatility because that dial color isn't going to be as uh, versatile across more strap choices. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, what I will say about the bracelet is that um, I have tried on enough Grand Seiko bracelets at this point to know that I don't have any major issues with them. And so um, I have purchased, I haven't received yet. I'm, I'm still waiting on my AD to, to deliver it. Um, uh, this exact bracelet for my 231, um, because I want to see if the experience would be as good as it looks like it is on the, on the 235. Um, and that's the other thing about this watch. Like I have something that can wear many different hats from an aesthetic standpoint. Um, when I'm thinking about what sort of wardrobe I'm, I'm wearing on a given day, when I when I care to think about that question. Um, and it's nice to know that I could wear it on a bracelet, on a formal looking strap, a dressy strap, a more casual strap, maybe even something a bit sporty, edging towards sporty. Although I don't think this particular watch, you can push too much in that direction. Um, you know, and, and, and I'm able to do all of that with a single watch. If I weren't the kind of crazy person who collects as many watches as I do, then um, I could just get this one watch and then have to invest incrementally far less money to be able to reuse the watch for very many more uh, contexts and scenarios. Um, and then, of course, like for what it is, if you compare how much you might have to pay or what the price of entry is for the comparable product offering from a brand like Omega, I think Omega's hand-wound coaxial movements um, that probably start around the six to $7,000 mark are not as good value for money as, as these movements. Um, even though they're coaxial, um, it really kind of like is at that point, like how much do you care about coaxial movements? Um, does it matter to you? Um, and sorry, are you talking about like, um... Co like manual coaxials from the Speedmaster or like other collections? Because there, there is no, the, the, right? the, I'm talking about the, the Trezors. The, I, I think they're called the Trezor DeVille handwound um, okay. models. Yeah. And yeah. then, you know, of course, like kind of you, you keep going up the price ladder and then you eventually get to a Patek Philippe Calatrava, which more or less looks like the, like the Grand Seiko, um, but obviously costs a lot more and a lot of that cost differential can be justified. Um, a big chunk of it obviously is just the difference in the in the brand perception and brand value. Uh, but some of it also just has to do with the fact that the Calatrava is you know far more uh, um, done up by hand than, than the Grand Seiko is. So it's like, yeah, un unless you're at the point where you are ready to spend the 20 to $25,000 that it's just, that it is going to cost you to get into the Calatrava game. I think 
this is probably the next best thing at any price point under that of a Calatrava and that purely on its own terms, it is a watch that could go toe to toe in any conversation about it and the Calatrava. Well, I mean, yeah. And, and the bracelet option, you know, having that um, really makes it a lot more compelling for me. Like, even if it is a dressier watch, I really enjoy having, you know, that option of like a, you know, purpose made, like fitted, you know, high quality or relatively high quality bracelet. I don't know. You know, I can't speak to that specific bracelet. Yeah. But, you know, in general, like, um, Grand Seiko bracelets seem to be at least, you know, I would say like, you know, decent quality. Um, but actually the Omega DeVille, I mean, I'm looking at the, you know, um, it's actually a current production watch. It's a 39.5 milli millimeter called the DeVille Prestige. Uh, this watch is a 3750 retail market price we're showing is $2,300, $2,400. Um, you know, this, this could also be a pretty, you know, compelling option you know sort of alternative to the grand seiko right I, I i don't know if it has a bracelet option but you know it is a um a coaxial uh, escapement it is a chronometer um it does have a date i don't think the other one like the grand, i don't believe the grand seiko has the grand seiko does not have a date right and it's and it's 39.5 millimeters but you know it's basically a thousand dollars less than um than than the grand seiko and you know like the deville I think is probably, you know, one of the most slept on, you know, uh, collections out there, like by a major brand, right? Um, before I owned a DeVille Hour Vision. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Hour Vision. I, I believe I've seen the the marketing, some of the marketing for it. Yeah, it, it has like this um, uh, sapphire, like flanked, like case. So the, the sides of the case are actually made of uh, sapphire like embedded in the stainless steel and so you can, see, you can see parts of the movement through it and that's why it's called the hour vision and this was an hour vision annual calendar so it had an annual calendar uh, module on top of the you know the, the base coaxial uh, movement and um, again this was this was many years ago I don't know what the prices are right now I guess we could look it up if I could find the reference but um, I paid five thousand dollars flat for that watch um, from actually a former employee of Omega. So I bought it from, um, and, you know, I think that watch was like over a $10,000 retail. Um, so I, again, I don't know what the current pricing is, but, you know, relatively speaking, that also seems quite compelling to me. So I think that if you, if you're like, if you're a fan of dress watches, um, or at least you're a fan of watches that lean towards the dressier side, maybe like the Grand Seiko or, or like, you know, the Ming, um, you know, there, there, there could still, still be compelling options from sort of mainstream brands. Yeah, totally. And, and, and speaking of dress watches, you know, just uh, moving on to my next pick, um, I would just say the Reverso in general is, um, a, a pretty compelling value to me. There's, you know, there's so many options. Uh, the Reverso is now, I think what approaching like something like its 90th anniversary, um, there are so many different reversal. It's like the Speedmaster, right? It's like there's there's so many different variations out there. Um, there's all this like you know crazy like unique stuff. Um, you can get reversos with display backs. You can get reversos with the dual face. That's one of my personal favorites. Um, they have the Squadra, which is like this sportier reverso. Um, they have the Grand Sport as well. Um, 
they have you know like like i think like ultra thin ones they have you know just all sorts of like different uh variations different case shapes uh, different case sizes so um i think that you know especially if you look at sort of neo vintage um options like there there's a lot of really good value uh in in the reverso space uh one of my personal favorites and the one that specifically i wanted to bring up um is the reference q39888 and this is a currently in production model i think it came out like 2 years ago and it's a duo face um with a blue dial on the 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 main face and the secondary face is a second time zone with a white dial and so i feel like this is really you know like it's it's two watches in one um and it's really like sort of the like you know two i think dial colors that go really well you know together it's like you have the blue dial that's you know like all the rage that's you know this this very sort of flashy you know stand out like dial color and then you have the more subtle white option when you want to go for that um this watch i don't believe uh, i think it's like a $12,000 retail or something like that 116 retail uh, which is a little bit expensive to me i think it's you know a bit overpriced or um maybe not overpriced but at least like you know sort of bordering on the the um upper end of what i want to pay but i've seen them you know listed for sale for as low as like 8700 like 6 months ago um and there are sort of there are like established dealers like asking like $9500 for this watch like available right now um and when you talk about sort of between the 8 and $9000 price point like if you can get this watch for like 9000 flat like that seems like a pretty good option to me i mean i i've not owned yet owned a reverso but it's like ever since i found out about it like early on in my collecting journey it's been a watch that i've always sort of I've spent a lot of time looking and and a few times very close to buying, you know, a, a reverso. Um, I just think the right the the you know, exact one that I want, um, you know, I've either missed it or just, you know, hasn't been the right timing. Um, but, you know, and and but there's, you know, even even cheaper options like that are out there like um the previous generation or I don't know if it was one or two generations ago like Reverso Duo Face. I love the Duo Face because I think it's it's two watches in one. It's like the best use today of that Reverso case design in my opinion because you don't need like the, you know, uh resiliency of like the steel, you know, case back anymore. Um but like the I think it's the 270.8.54 reference um old Reverso Duo Face which has the um black dial and the white dial on the other side. Uh, again also a second time zone um goes for somewhere between like i think like 5 or 6 5 and 6000 um and it's also you know like very wearable i think like there you know and and you can get it on a bracelet too like yeah it's sort of it's sort of endless like the number of options out there and you can go like you know like high end complications too there's a ton of those options um so uh you know yeah like the rabbit hole does go very deep um but for one reason or another like you know and it's sort of the original sports watch too right you know the the reverso was a sports watch before sports watches were really a thing um and yet for some reason it's it's a bit underappreciated i don't know if it's the um square case like i don't know if 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 the square case is not for everyone i certainly understand that um but you know i think that there's always been a you know elegance uh to the reverso cases that i've always really liked I have one more example that I wanted to share. Um Absolutely, go for it. 
Okay, so um, and let's let's sort of uh, go, you know, straight like completely different price range, like entry level. Um, Hamilton Khaki King Auto. This is a watch. Oh, interesting. It's a $125 retail on the bracelet, $575 with the strap, but I think for sure pay the extra $50 and get the bracelet. This is a watch I also have owned, by the way. Um, It's a watch that um, I bought early on in my collecting journey. Um, Day-date complication, right? It has the modified um, ETA Hamilton H40 caliber with the extra 80 hour, you know, the extra long, like 80 hour power reserve. So they basically doubled the power reserve of the standard um, at a caliber that they use for this. Um, and at 625, I don't know, like, I don't think it's, I, I would not say it's an amazing value, but you can get this watch on forums. And there was literally one, like just a couple of days ago with the bracelet, full box and papers for as low as 290. That's wild. And Oh, and not to mention, this is also the house watch. This is the watch that Gregory House wore in the TV show House MD, which I love. And um, I watched, you know, the whole thing even before I was ever a watch collector. Um, And to me, there's there's also that sort of special connection. But yeah, under $300 for a day date with an extended uh, power reserve movement on a bracelet, and it's you know pretty nicely finished, I would say, for the, for the price point as well. You know the quality is good, and it has that sort of you know classic like utilitarian look to it. Um, loomed uh, hands, I believe, loomed um, Roman or sorry, not uh, Arabic numerals, um, and it's an it's an automatic movement as well. You know, it's ETA, like you know, it's reliable. Um, so. Like at that point, like I would say, like that's maybe even better than like you know I I would I would recommend this probably over like a two or three hundred dollar Seiko I think. Would you recommend it over a Tissot PRX? That's tough, right? I mean, yeah, the PRX is also because that's no, I, I bring that up because it is in that price bracket the most hyped thing right now. For sure, for sure, yeah. But is that is the PRX over retail? The PRX is not over retail right now. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, I think it's like, what, like $400 on the secondary market or something like that. So yeah, in the same ballpark. Um, yeah, I think it's a matter of preference, again, like when it comes to that. They're both quite compelling options. You know, sort of Tissot and Hamilton, I think, are both uh, very reasonable, you know, like sort of entry-level Swiss options. Um, the PRX, you know, it, it does, it is sort of on trend right now. And actually, like, that's, that's actually a really good recommendation. Oh, actually, so we're showing for the... Um, for the automatic, because they do make a quartz one as well, right? Right. Automatic is five ninety seven. Exactly. So kind of a so it's kind of a different price point, right? You know, so you are going to pay like double, and five ninety seven is the is the secondary market price. So you are going to pay about double on the secondary market for the Tissot, but you can probably get the quartz for close to three or four hundred, I would guess. Right. Um, so, you know, it's, it's still a comparison. If, that, if, if the movement is not terribly important to you, then, you know, yeah, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's for the, you know, for the, if, you, if you're more about the design, then it's, it's, still, it's still a comparison. It's still a compelling option. Um, it's hard for me to say which one I recommend more. I've not owned a PRX. I have owned a Khaki. Um, how big is the PRX, by the way? It's 40 millimeters, but it's because of the case design quite, big on the wrist i have an 18 centimeter seven inch wrist 
I wouldn't say that it was like hanging off the edges of my wrist, but I would say that it looked like it was taking up quite a bit about, you know, quite a bit of um, a surface area. For so sure. it, 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 because of the way the case is constructed. And so even though, you know, you, you have a round dial, there's all of that extra metal in the shoulders around all four corners. Um, and then those shoulders kind of slope down um, into the into the first lug, it's you know the the bracelet doesn't articulate fully obviously on the first link, yeah. so it just yeah if if you wear it on even a slightly smaller wrist, I feel like it will look like much more noticeable perhaps than the Hamilton might. I was gonna say on the Hamilton, I'm not sure if it's if it's got articulating end links and what the lug to lug is on the case itself. But I, I would be surprised just at a glance if this 40 millimeters were as big or bigger than the PRX 40 millimeters. Yeah, I, I suspect it probably wouldn't, although the lug to lug for the Hamilton, I thought was pretty like big. Um, it ex I, I don't think they needed, I think the, the bracelet does pull straight down if I'm not mistaken. It's again, it's been a couple of years since I owned that watch, but um. I was I was surprised about how sort of far out the lugs go, and I think it's especially noticeable when you put the watch on a bracelet. Um, so that was one sort of minor thing that I did not enjoy too much about it. Um, but yeah, I think when it comes down to value, it's it's more just a matter of preference. Um, you know, they're roughly the same price point. I think if you go with the quartz option, they're probably very very close, almost identical, the same price point. Um, and it's probably just you know a matter of what's your wrist size what's more wearable for you, what aesthetic do you like more? Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, day-date complication, in uh, not in-house, well, I guess maybe uh, Hamilton is is uh, Swatch, right, I believe. So yes, it is. You might be able to say it's an in-house movement, but, you know, a modified movement with extended Sure. <laughs> well, well, we'll call it an in-house. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it's if, if just to go sort of completely, you know, on a, towards a different price point, um, definitely a watch that I think I would, you know, strongly recommend um, for $300. Yeah, I, I think, I think excellent pick. Yeah, I think we can leave it at that. Seems like a, a good stopping point. But um, I also wanted to shout out, you know, we talked about a lot, a lot of numbers here in addition to, you know, sort of our tastes and you know collecting philosophies but you know all of our data is publicly available um, it's on the watch charts website watchcharts.com um, we show retail prices if we have them and we also show you know the updated uh the market prices updated daily um so you know if you ever want to know you know how much is the watch worth what should, what's a fair price for it and even just you know to, to browse watches for sale we aggregate you know all the top forums out there, all the top, you know, public like data sources out there, like eBay, uh, you can go and, you know, browse all of them at once through our site. Also check out our IG um, at watch charts. Uh, we post infographics basically every single day, infographics or wrist shots uh, every single day. Um, and a lot of times, you know, we'll, we'll sort of highlight the stuff that's, you know, trending or, you know, being talked about in the market. And uh, finally, subscribe to us on YouTube or whatever podcast platform you're listening to this on. We're gonna we're looking to produce a lot more of this type of content in the future. Um, so yeah, make sure you get subscribed and keep updated. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.